Thanks, guys, for leading us in worship this morning. In a Peanuts comic strip, Linus is curled up in a chair. He's reading a book. And Lucy is standing behind him with a funny look on her face. Lucy then says, It's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. What happened? asks Linus. Lucy calmly answers, I can feel a criticism coming on. You know, Jesus had that kind of impact on people. Not all people, mind you, but certainly some people. And in the opening testimony of John's Gospel, the Apostle John, in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, reported he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. When they encountered him, they felt a case of the criticism coming on. For some, there was an instant aversion to Jesus and his ministry. We could call it the Linus effect. And not all Linus effects are created equal. The passage we'll be focusing on this morning have negative responses that fall along a continuum. On one end of that continuum would be those who were seeking to kill him. On the other end of the continuum would be those who are grumbling about him, debating amongst themselves as to his worth. Is he good or is he bad? Helpful or destructive? And then, somewhere in between those two extremes, we have those who remain in close proximity to Jesus, but still are not believing in him. There were different degrees of rejection, but the detractors were present. They were very real. And perhaps this is just another unavoidable reality of gospel ministry. We will face detractors. And I should say that none of this caught Jesus by surprise. From the very beginning, he admitted that his ministry would be divisive. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 52. He also prepared his followers with a warning that those who hated him will also hate them. You will be hated by all because of my name. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Later in John's gospel, in John chapter 15, we read these words. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Because of this, the world hates you. And this kind of aversion to Jesus and the gospel ministry continues to this very day. So as we attempt to live as the faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ, lights shining in a dark world, a city set on a hill, salt that adds savor and preserves and prevents the spread of infection, the spread of sin. We will face ministry detractors, you and I. Sometimes it's a dismissal with a roll of the eyes and a wave of the hands. Sometimes it's a verbal challenge, a critique, a debate. Other times it will be more personal in their rejection. They'll just stop calling. We'll be isolated. And for some, it may even get hostile. Intimidation, bullying, threatening. Regardless of its form, we need to be prepared to respond appropriately to resistance to the gospel, to ministry detractors. I like this reflection that I came across earlier this week. Detractor? This word conjures a large, conjures a large, heavily geared machine found in the rural areas of the mind, the imaginative acres, and used to reverse any labors undertaken in the interests of artistic creation and growth. The word may also refer to the driver of said machine. When a person writes and makes that writing public, for example, detractors appear on the horizons, their engines roaring, snorting, as they charge across the field to shred and crush the most vital crops. The writer is destroyed, mesmerized, and with a merry surge of suicidal ideation, eager to join these detractors, if only to demonstrate best practices for who is a better detractor than the detracted. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have no desire or interest in becoming detractors. But we, need, we do need to be prepared to face them, to respond appropriately when we do. A couple of weeks ago, we finished up John chapter 6. It was a long chapter, but near the end of that chapter, we read many of his disciples withdrew, and we're, walking, and we're not walking with him anymore. The focus on that message was preparing for departures. Here in John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, it's preparing for detractors, ministry detractors, those who would oppose Jesus and gospel ministry. How will you respond to critics of the gospel? to those suffering with a chronic case of the Linus effect, to rejection, 
to those who display an aversion to Jesus or anything related to him? How will you respond? This morning, we have an opportunity to study how Jesus responded to detractors, to those who opposed him. As I mentioned earlier, there are three types of detractors represented in these verses. Observing how Jesus responded to them will prepare us to respond when we find ourselves facing ministry detractors. And notice how Jesus responds. We'll notice how Jesus responds first to the Jews, and then to his brothers, and finally to the crowd, as represented in John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. I'd like to, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading from God's word this morning. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, was near. I can't say that word without thinking of our daughter-in-law, who was born and raised in South Carolina, and she calls Canadians owls because we always go, who, who? We have a lot of who's in our... So when I say... How do you say booze without sounding like an owl? But anyway. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. May God help us to understand the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It claims to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and 
woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so we come humbly, believing that these words have transformative power, that the same Spirit who inspired them can help us to understand them and then empower us to imply them in ways that will enable us to live as you intended us to live. Use this episode, taken from the life and ministry of Jesus, to prepare us to respond appropriately to those who would oppose us, ministry detractors, those who respond negatively to the mention of Jesus' name or anything that has to do with gospel ministry. Father, may we be adequately equipped to be faithful ambassadors for Christ. As those who've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And now may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. By the power of your spirit, for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Preparing for detractors. When facing ministry detractors, avoid killers. Jesus responded to the Jews who were seeking to kill him by staying in Galilee. When the Apostle John uses that label, the Jews, he is, more often than not, referring to that Jewish religious establishment headquartered in the city of Jerusalem, close to the temple. I suppose in President Trump's world, he would refer to them as Judaism's swamp. But they viewed themselves as God's self-appointed watchdogs charged with looking after or ensuring the law and the traditions were kept to the letter. Initially, the Jews had appeared skeptical and yet curious about this new young rabbi out of the province of Galilee. We're introduced to one of them, Back in John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus? A man of the Pharisees. A ruler of the Jews. The teacher of Israel. Is how Jesus addressed him. But as Jesus' popularity grew. And gained momentum. Their hostilities kept pace. And so in John chapter 5, there is verbal persecution in verse 16, which became the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him just two verses later. Why? Because they understood him to be making himself equal with God by calling God his own father. 
And so by the time we get to John chapter 7, the Jewish desire to eliminate him had not at all waned. They were still looking for opportunities where they could kill him. Verse 11 confirms what verse 1 reports. Notice. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? They weren't looking for Jesus so that they could sit under his teaching. They were looking to kill him. Interesting. The one who is God dressed in human flesh, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. The radiance of his glory, that's God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3. The same one by whom all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is how Paul describes Jesus. So let me be clear. Jesus did not fear these hostile Jews for one single minute. Remember the night that he was betrayed? They were arresting him in the Garden of Gethsemane. When an unnamed follower of Jesus drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear, Jesus immediately puts an end to this kind of physical confrontation or physical resistance with a rhetorical question. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Jesus may not have feared these hostile Jews, but clearly we can see God using ministry detractors to accomplish his plans and purposes. Amazing. We often quote Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and Lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. But are you prepared to trust him when he allows ministry detractors, our opponents, those who want nothing to do with Jesus or gospel ministry, when he allows them to dis disrupt our best laid plans, withhold answers to our prayers, prevent our spiritual service of worship, 
or fulfill our attempts to serve his plans and purposes. Here we are, attempting to do the right thing. Instead, we find ourselves facing this insurmountable, immovable, and maybe even life-threatening obstacle. Will you trust his sovereignty? And continue to remain faithful through the delays caused by those who are resisting or even opposing gospel ministry. And notice, Jesus didn't stop walking. He just limited where he walked. We need to follow in his steps. So how do we avoid killers? Avoid killers by, first of all, being aware of them. You and I can thank the Lord that we don't live in a, at a time and in a place where claiming faith in Jesus Christ could cost us our lives. That may not always be the case, but for now, we enjoy unprecedented freedom that we should not take for granted. But we do live in the midst of, a, of an increasingly intolerant, hostile environment when it comes to Christianity. There are those who would like to destroy our reputations, or at least discredit our gospel ministries. Avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. Avoid killers by sticking together. There is strength in numbers. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 charges us, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Avoid those who would do us harm or discredit the gospel ministry by developing supportive, mutually supportive relationships with like-minded believers. We are stronger together. And for sure, that kind of relationship building doesn't happen by accident. We have to be intentional. And they're going to take effort. And it's not going to happen overnight. But they never become a reality by accident. We have to work at them. And finally, avoid killers by not going around flexing your spiritual muscles or looking for a fight. That's one sure way to get beat up. Preparing for detractors. I think they're unavoidable. When facing ministry detractors, avoid killers and engage 
unbelievers. Jesus responded to his unbelieving brothers who were advising him to go into Judea by explaining the reason for his delight. Look at verses, begin at verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, these are his biological half-brothers. They, of course, share the same mum, but they did have different fathers. And these would have been the brothers that hung around Jesus all through that period of time described by Luke 2.52. Probably about eight years old, all the way until he's 30 years old. This is all we're told about this period in Jesus' life. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and all people. Just an aside, this one you get for free. But that's the verse that I pray for our grandchildren every day. That they would grow in wisdom, in stature, and favor with God and man. So grandparents, there's one that you don't have to pay for. These brothers would have been able to fill in all the, all the missing details concerning Jesus' growing up days. Perhaps it would suggest that proximity does not necessarily give us an advantage when it comes to believing in Jesus. They spent those one to 30 years, well, they were probably younger, so whenever they were born till 30 years, living and growing beside Jesus, and yet we find them here as young men who are ready to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival of booze, and they were not yet believing that he was the Christ, the Son of God. Proximity does not necessarily mean that we will become believers. Older now, they take the initiative and approach Jesus because of this upcoming Feast of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Booze was an annual feast celebrated by Jews in the fall of the year, sometime between late September, mid-October. And so in John chapter 6, we talked about the Passover, which is in the spring of the year. So six months have passed, and John ignores all that as he begins John chapter 7. This feast was instituted by God and is reported in Leviticus chapter 23. Let's turn there for a moment. In your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. So bookend 
by rest. This festival went on for seven days. It's also called the ingathering feast because it happens at the end of the harvest season. It's like our Thanksgiving or maybe the American Thanksgiving because that's as big as Christmas down there or bigger. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Remember Jesus, how he entered the city? Call it Palm Sunday? It's not surprising that these people had these palm branches that were waving, right? They were there to celebrate this festival. Anyway, you shall see thus you you shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when they brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. This is one of three pilgrim festivals on the Jewish calendar, which in Jesus' day, where all males were required to come to Jerusalem to where the temple was. Apparently, it was the most popular of these three festivals. It was like a, a great RV gathering where they would come to Jerusalem and they would build these booths and you'd find them on the tops, the roofs of houses because they had flat roofs. You'd, you'd find them in the fields all around Jerusalem. They were, it was a camping trip. And Leviticus chapter 23 tells us why that is. But apparently it was the most popular of the three required Jewish feasts. Commemorated the Israel's sojourn in the wilderness. Many devoted Jews would build these shelters out of branches and actually live in them for the seven days of the festival. So Jesus' half-brothers were planning off, planning to head off to this great celebration in the city of Jerusalem. And they approach him with what appears to be unsolicited advice. Their advice is found in verses 3 and 4. His brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, admittedly, I always read these verses and thought that his half-brothers were, were presenting kind of a mocking challenge. Not unlike those who stood at the foot of the cross. He saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God. His chosen one. But having studied this week, I'm not so sure anymore. Clearly, they were unbelievers, according to verse 5. 
Let me read that. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Could be that that was an expression of concern, the advice that they were giving him. They would have been aware of what had taken place and the end of John chapter 6 when many of his disciples stopped following him. And so here we have his brothers rallying around him, providing their best advice for recovering from some of his most recent losses. After all, there would be a huge crowd flooding into the city of Jerusalem. They assumed Jesus wanted to be popular. What did they say? That he would be known publicly. And they were becoming his facilitators, his marketers, his, his handlers. They assumed that Jesus wanted to have great crowds. I had a prophet at the Expositor Seminary where we were living in Jupiter, Florida, who wrote this book called Doing God's Business, God's Way. The elders have read it last year. But here's the key question that this prof asks and answers throughout the entire book. Are you really doing God's business, God's way, or merely attempting to do his work, man's way? You see, Jesus' brothers were unbelievers, and I think the advice that they were offering was this is how you can do God's business, man's way. And it's interesting to see Jesus' response to his brother's advice. Look at verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Jesus' explanation for why he was not going to follow his brother's advice can be summarized with just two words, timing and testimony. In all four gospel accounts, we catch glimpses of this divine timetable that's unfolding in the life of Jesus. And he seems to be really sensitive throughout this ministry period of his life to the Father's timing as his life unfolds. And Jesus moved through his life attentive to God's timing. I came across this reflection in my studies. As the old saying goes, timing is everything. Deliver the punchline of a joke without enough pause or too much pause, and the joke falls flat. Rush your proposal for marriage, and you may not be taken seriously. Apply for a job at the wrong time, and you won't be hired. Jesus lived on the clock. He lived by God's sense of timing, so he ordered his plans based on God's will and in God's timing. Timing and testimony. 
The second reason for not following his brother's advice is because of his testimony against the world. The world, like individuals, has been polluted and contaminated by sin. And sin hates to be exposed. Sin thrives in darkness. Jesus is referred to in John chapter 1 again as the true light coming into the world enlightens every man. But rather than acknowledge their sin and turn away from it, asking God to forgive them, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the world chooses to hate him. And folks, this is a more popular choice than we would like. And that is why Jesus told his brothers, who were not even believing in him, to go up to the feast without him. He was staying in Galilee. You know, God is patient with unbelievers. There are many verses that would reinforce that, but these, verse, these words from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, will suffice. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I think it's significant that these same brothers, half-brothers of Jesus, are named in the company of believers following his resurrection from the dead. What a display of God's grace. Following Jesus' ascension into heaven, they returned to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, to the upper room from the mount called Olivet. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the report goes like this. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And with his brothers. God had been patient, not wishing that any of Jesus' biological half-brothers would perish. And here they are, named among Jesus' most intimate followers, the ones who became the core of a movement that continues to this very day, the New Testament church of which you and I are a part. So how can we engage 
unbelievers. Engage unbelievers by being approachable. Just be available. Have margins in your life that would allow for you to build relationships and connect with those who do not yet believe. Build a significant relationship. You notice these are brothers of Jesus. Maybe we should qualify the unbelievers that we are engaging with. People that we've built a significant relationship is most preferable. Engage unbelievers by listening to them. Notice, Jesus didn't ask for their advice. They felt the freedom to come and give this unsolicited advice. James chapter 1, verse 19. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Talking and anger impairs our hearing. And impairs our hearing in a way that good old hearing aids will not help. Engage unbelievers by clarifying your position. Jesus went on to explain why exactly he wasn't going up to the city of Jerusalem with him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us to be ready. Be ready. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready. Be ready to explain it. Preparing for detractors. When facing ministry detractors, avoid the killers, engage with unbelievers, and observe grumblers. Jesus responded to the crowd who were grumbling about him by staying out of public view. Look at the first part of verse 12. There was much grumbling among the crowd concerning him. Uh-oh. Where have we heard that before? Look back at John chapter 6 and verse 60. Therefore, many of his, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? On this occasion, it was the disciples that were grumbling because they were having trouble accepting what Jesus was teaching. Anyone the least bit familiar with Israel's history knows that as God led them from under Egyptian oppressive Egyptian slavery, through the Red Sea, across the wilderness, the borders of the promised land, the land that he promised their ancestors would one day be theirs. They know, we know that they suffered from chronic grumbling. Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, is just one of many 
many examples. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And not just once, but continually. And their grumbling served to provoke God. In Numbers chapter 14 we read, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Their grumbling is an expression of dissatisfaction. God took it personally, and it resulted in God's judgment against them. Here in John chapter 7, we find their grumbling was not provoked by a lack of comfort and provision, but by debates and fear. God is aware of our grumbling. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That was verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us. That's what happened to Israel, the nation of Israel. So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Drop down to verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction, for our benefit upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It seems to me that grumbling is a great way to invite the judgment of God. And we can't say he didn't warn us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. How can we observe grumblers? I would say observe grumblers by not insisting on being the center of attention. Jesus was quite content to walk around the streets of Jerusalem, hearing the grumbling and yet being out of the limelight. Observe grumblers by seeking first to understand before being understood. Again, Jesus was a listener. Observe grumblers by seeking first to understand 
before being understood. And then observe grumblers by exercising patience. Back to that comment about unsolicited advice. That often does not go well, at least that's been my experience. Unsolicited advice is often not heard nor appreciated. Maybe this is one of those occasions where Jesus' words in the last chapter of his Sermon on the Mount apply. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus was patient, was quite content to observe these grumblers. Preparing for detractors. Avoid the killers. Engage with unbelievers. Sit back and observe the grumblers. They're not ready yet. Let's pray. Father, your word informs us that it is because of your grace. While we were yet sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, that you demonstrated your own love for us in this. You gave your one and only son, a son who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring each one of us safely home to God so that by believing in him as the Christ, the Son of God, we can have eternal life in his name. We're made, as a result, new creatures in Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And you entrust us with this message of reconciliation, namely, that you are reconciling the world to yourself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Father, enable us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, even this week as we go about the business of living our lives in a lost world. Help us to avoid killers, Engage unbelievers and observe grumblers by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.